Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Harry. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss how Boris Johnson is trying to relaunch himself after the confidence vote. And you ask us, why are his MPs still backing him? So I'm back. Thank you so much for holding down the fort in a very quiet couple of days of politics, really. I mean, it was just so easy for you guys, to be honest. I thought that your discussions about the confidence vote were really interesting. And now we're in the aftermath. Boris Johnson's attempting a relaunch. He's announcing some new housing policy today. Um, we don't know the details of that yet, so we won't unpick that uh, in any detail at the moment. But Harry... I don't know if number 10 know the details yet. Yeah, that probably is part of why we don't know the detail yet as well. But it doesn't really look like Boris Johnson is necessarily going to be safe for a year, which is sort of if the rules were going to work, how the rules work, that should be the case. Is that right, Harry? Yes, I think there's a lot of talk around this. Boris Johnson, as far as I understand it, does believe he's safe for a year. And he's wrong to do so because, first of all, there are no strict rules about how the 1922 or the Tory party operate. This is all really convention. Or, or sort of lowercase r rules. Oh, can, I, can I do a Pirates of the Caribbean reference? Sure. They're more like guidelines anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, continue. Exactly. It's like when you went to Blockbuster and bought things and you'd say to your mum, this is just a recommendation that you be 18 to watch this. And if you do look, do look at those rules, then in theory, for good reason, he's safe for a year because you can't have no confidence votes every other week. But in reality, as as I think we've been reporting for a while. As soon as a majority of Tory MPs want another vote in Boris Johnson, they'll get one. And the way that that will happen is the 1922 committee can at any time decide to hold another vote. And the executive of the committee, which is a, a small group of about 17 at the moment, can theoretically decide to do one tonight. And there is actually a majority, I understand, of, of rebels on that group of 17. There are nine rebels, seven that support Johnson and one who's unknown. So in theory, they could do it. Now, they not, of course, they're not going to do it just now. We just had a vote. But the idea that it can't happen is wrong. And, and you only have to go back to 2019 when Theresa May had survived a no-confidence vote in December. And by May of 19, the 1922 executive at the time met and held a vote on whether to have another no-confidence um, motion against her. And they took the results of that decision to number 10. And they said to May, we're going to open this envelope and very likely have another no-confidence vote in you unless you resign. 
And so she resigned. Okay, and that was before the year was up, wasn't it? So that was a way of forcing exactly. her hand. That was less than six months. Yeah. yeah. And there's always this feeling, I think, uh, this complacent feeling, really, that um, no, confidence votes which uh, result in the prime minister winning can be a sort of cleansing moment. And so they can get back to doing what they want to do and the matter settled. I remember listening to an interview with Gavin Barwell, who was Theresa May's chief of staff at the time of, their, of her confidence vote vote. And he was saying that they were so keen to get to one that they were actually considering putting in votes of no confidence themselves as her um, supporters to try and bring one uh, closer so that they could get on with their agenda. But it never actually works like that, does it? And Boris Johnson has made so many statements recently saying that he wants to get back to the business of government. But now there's a sense that no nobody really believes him when he announces new policies or suggests that he's going to cut taxes. I think we had the first Boris Johnson relaunch in June 2020, which was when uh, the, the government was getting some criticism for its handling of the pandemic. We certainly had some in the autumn of 2021 and then basically since Partygate broke and, and the Owen Patterson scandal broke, it, it almost feels every week there's a new relaunch. There's a new headline about things like, we talked about this last week, I think, bonfire of EU regulations, which basically is code for, we're still governing and doing the things you want to, honest. I think it might be possible, theoretically, to go back to your agenda and for the government to say, yeah, we're going to get on with the hard work of governing, if they had an agenda, which they, they don't at the moment. They're lurching from policy to policy. We, we can't blame the Tory government entirely for the economic crisis and inflation and, and, and war with Ukraine. There are lots of external forces, but they don't really have that much they can do, or that, certainly that much that, 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 that they are doing to, to combat any of that. So you're not getting a kind of coherent policy agenda, which means that it's very difficult to go to the party and to, to MPs and say, we've had this confidence vote. Now let's get on with the job like Margaret Thatcher was doing. She had a vision. She had a policy set of strategies. People knew where they were going. We've got grammar schools. We're going to bring those back. Some imperial measurements, which we'll possibly talk about a bit about later. Uh, And we're going to solve the housing crisis. How? We're not sure. We're not going to do a windfall tax. We are going to do a windfall tax. We're going to call it something else. What are they asking for a renewed mandate to do except for to continue trying to cling on to power. Yes, and actually it's really difficult, isn't it, to try and pander to uh, certain policy asks in this rebellion because Harry as you wrote in your very good piece that I suggest our listeners all go and listen to about why Boris Johnson is wrong to believe he's safe for a year you reckoned that a majority of backbenchers did put in letters of no confidence right that it was more on that side than the payroll side Mm -hmm. Um, and if that's true that's a huge mix of different politics isn't it so if you announce the sending asylum seekers to Rwanda policy that's going to piss some people off if you you announce the windfall tax that's going to piss some other people off there's one nation Tories in there who are really disaffected. There's ERG members in there who are really disaffected, at least for Theresa May. She knew which faction to pander to, which Mm -hmm. was the sort of Brexit ultras. But it makes it really difficult for Boris Johnson and his team to know which backbenchers' tummies to tickle, basically. (laughs) That's not an image that I wanted. There's a great Chekhov quote, uh, when many remedies are suggested for a disease, it cannot be cured. And that's a bit like where we are now with him and the the government. And uh, Rachel and I talked about possible numbers of rebels on Monday. It's just worth mentioning for our listeners, this is right at the top end of the expectations we were talking about. This is 148 rebels is one more in today's terms proportionally than against Thatcher. And and she had gone by now, announced her resignation 48 hours later. And here we are more than 48 hours later and he's acting like nothing's happened. I think he's definitely in deep trouble and it's probably not going to be 
before the summer recess. So there's the by-elections in a few weeks, but probably unlikely that the 1922 think the mood has changed enough to move towards another vote. And so you're, you're probably looking at something in the autumn. And just to flag, the, the committee I'm talking about, which on which there's a majority for the rebels, will be re-elected in the autumn. And that vote will, as one person said to me, essentially be a no-confidence vote proxy because oh, the yeah. rebels will put through a slate of MPs who back changing the rules. And they will try and get those people put on. And crucially, people on the government uh, payroll, the strict government payroll, let's not get into that, that's 95 MPs, they won't be able to vote. And so only the backbenchers will, and there's a majority of, of rebels on the backbenchers. So I'd be quite confident that the rebels will be able to get their committee elected in the autumn and therefore change the rules if they would like later this year. That's so interesting. I'm really looking forward to the prospect of the committee executive changing the rules and Boris Johnson and his supporters saying this is totally unfair and undemocratic and how can you change the rules midway through? And you're thinking, didn't you just change the ministerial code? <laughs> I'm really looking forward to uh, Nadine Dory's response to that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> They're only learning from the master. Right? I, I still think the, the high point this week has been her interview where she just said, I'm baffled that MPs think they can do this it's it's the rule book of your party this is how it works didn't 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 you do this Theresa May a couple of years ago do you have amnesia should you really be culture secretary if you have amnesia but just uh, the way she and and other sort of diehard Boris Johnson supporters are just able to twist things and and seem very happy to make statements like that uh, on TV. I do think that there are a minority, though, that there's Nadine Doris and there's Jacob Rees-Mogg and there are some others who seem committed to the Boris project. There are a lot of other cabinet members who seemed very uncomfortable about being asked to, to support the Prime Minister or who, who managed to do so in words that you can always almost imagine they've got their fingers crossed behind their back. I don't think... I think Harry's probably right in that the majority of votes against him came from the rebels and I can see why if you're on government payroll you, you would uh, feel like maybe you should vote for him but I don't think that enthusiasm is particularly warm or particularly genuine shall we say just on that so I think at the start of this year no one it, it takes a while to get ready to get rid of the PM if you're in the cabinet and at the start of this year other contenders weren't ready to be PM though they all believe uh, as people like to say that they can be but I think by the end of this year especially now that we see how weak Boris is and they have the whole summer to prepare you'll get much more um, of a feeling among potential top cabinet ministers that they should now move and so I think that's why a second vote or something like that later in this year becomes very likely because I think the crucial constituency here is those cabinet ministers and their teams in their party who currently have backed the prime minister because they're not ready to jump but later in this year might be ready to move. And are those sort of alternative leadership campaigns galvanising now that we've had this very bad outcome for the Prime Minister? It's, it's really too early to tell because we're less than 72 hours after, but they will be for sure. And we'll see that starting to happen over, the, I think, the next six weeks. And I, I think just looking at the, and the numbers, even if you thought that that he was going to win and he did, I think everyone on, on both sides was quite shocked at how no, how high that number went and I get the impression that there's still a lot of uh, anger and confusion as to how Downing Street and how the whips let it get to that point and lost control to that degree. 
Yeah. Would that be right, Harry? Yeah, I think that's true. They wanted to keep it under 100. And the range the Rebels were briefing was 115 to 145. So that's just, just outside at the top end of the range. I'm not sure what the whips could really do in the sense that it's so hard to identify the Rebels because they're everywhere. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned Nadine Doris, actually, because it turns out that she, some of these hardcore supporters like her and Jacob Rees-Mogg are turning out to be quite a liability for oh, yeah. the Prime Minister. We've spoken about this before, many episodes back, about how some of these cheerleaders are shooting their, their own leader in the foot, in a way. And that came up at PMQs, actually. Keir Starmer quoting Nadine Doris's comments that it was years of Conservative government <laughs> that meant that, that the government was unprepared for the pandemic. And those were comments that were aimed at Jeremy Hunt, who is a potential sort of leadership hopeful. But do you think it worked? Do you think Keir Starmer has weaponized that line of attack effectively? The failings of the, the past 10 years, well, this is what he was trying to do in PMQs. And a lot of people were unimpressed by the way Keir failed to skewer Boris yesterday. But the Labour line is we need to blame all Tories for what's happened over the last decade plus. And their fear is that they pin too much blame on Johnson and then he goes and the Tory party somehow move on. Well, Okay, you can see the rationale for that. But I think the the big problem with it is Keir so often fails, seemingly, in these big moments in PMQs. And it leads to a narrative that builds up that he's weak or esoteric in his manner and, and in his questions. And I think it would be so much more effective for the Labour Party if the press were impressed by Keir each week than if they were finding him so curious in his in his approach. Mm. So I'm going to do a rare thing and defend Keir Starmer's I was PMQ's gonna, I was performance, defend actually. Keir oh, really? Starmer. Okay. Yeah. No, no, you, you, you go first. One, Harry. You go Please. first. But yeah, I think going on the NHS is, I understand why people might have thought that it made him look like he wasn't going for the jugular because of what had just happened in the past 72 hours, like you say, Harry. What's happening here is that we've got two by-elections coming up very soon and the NHS, it, I've heard in Tiverton and Hunterton in particular, is a big issue for voters. So it's got the worst ambulance delays in Devon, um, and people are bringing it up um, a lot because it's in those kind of rural areas where there is sort of rural poverty and services have been stripped away where people are most concerned um, about the uh, state of the health service. These things are political calculations and I think the NHS is high up on the agenda. Someone like Jeremy Hunt, who wants to have another crack at the leadership, has been talking about it so much, written a book about it. Obviously, he has that experience as having been health secretary as well, but he knows that's going to be a big issue in an upcoming general election and look at the waiting list. It's a record high. So I do think that if Labour can get on the front foot talking about GPs, talking about these minor irritations in people's lives, you can't get an appointment with your GP. You can't even ring up the surgery. You can't register as a NHS patient at a dentist anymore. These things add up to make you feel like the country is just not working how it should. And that could have the impact, like you say, Harry, which is Labour's aim, um, to get people fed up with Conservative government just rather than just fed up with Boris Johnson, the man. Because there is a long Corbyn effect out there, as you hear. And so it is important for them to damage the Conservative brand as well as, as, well as the sort of personal reputation of the Prime Minister. I would agree with all of that. I would also say that if you think that your next opponent is likely to be Jeremy Hunt, which it might well be, then going hard on the... Harry is shaking his head, it won't be Jeremy Hunt, but if you think that it might be Jeremy Hunt, then going hard on, on the NHS and all of the NHS problems that long precede Boris Johnson is probably a smart move. The other thing I would say is that I think Labour are just still a bit stunned maybe perhaps is the wrong word but they've noticed how Boris Johnson was able to after 10 years of Tory rule basically 
act like a, a new government and a fresh start. And he kind of managed to blame all of the issues on previous Tory prime ministers, even though there were a lot of the same people in the cabinet, even though he was in the cabinet at one point, he was in Theresa May's cabinet. But he was just uh, amazingly adept in, in the, the, the first part of being prime minister before the pandemic of sort of wiping the slate clean. And if I were Labour, I'd be I'd have noticed that and I'd be a bit concerned that a new leader might be able to do the same thing and say, yeah, Boris was useless, but I didn't back Boris. Look, I'm a new kind of Tory PM and the, that, that record wouldn't count. Now, I'm not sure who it would be who'd be able to do that. And obviously, Boris is something of a, a special case. But you do want to make the point that they've been in power for 12 years. The country is falling apart with the NHS, with ambulance delays, with food prices, with shortages of, of drivers with the passport office I could do an entire podcast just on the issues with the passport office or the DVLA like all of these problems have stacked up because of 12 years of party rule so making the continuity point but I also agree with with Harry that it was a bit of an anticlimax and if he was going to go after Boris in a different way he should have been able to do it in a sharper and, and more effective more polemic kind of style which he wasn't able to do. Yeah, and I just think it's all about how you think voters engage with politics. Do you think they are watching PMQs or do you think they engage with politics by reading the reactions to PMQs? That's also another part of it. And if the press are all going to react badly to what you've done, is it that effective for you to say, well, the voters are watching and they were impressed? And I think the next story leader will probably try and reinvent himself anyway, and I'm not, or, or herself. I'm not quite sure that Keir's oblique tack at PMQs is going to change that. But we could talk about PMQ strategy all day. <laughs> Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Mardwe screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask, Ask Us. Us. 
So we have an interesting question today from Tom. Thanks for writing in. He asks, how exactly would you break down the motivations for MPs coming out to support Boris Johnson? This is really interesting because we've been talking a lot about the rebels, but not so much about those who are supporting him. And Tom adds, how do you compare this breakdown to Theresa May's backing during the 2019 confidence vote? So I think... Starting out, what's interesting is that you do have, we've already talked about this, you do have such a mix of uh, rebels, i.e. from different parts of the party with different philosophies and who are disaffected for different reasons. But I think it's the same for those who are in support. So I was speaking to someone on the One Nation sort of side of the party recently who was saying, look, Boris Johnson is the only leader likely of all the alternatives who is going to spend the money that we want to be spent on the services and uh, infrastructure projects that we want fixed and that, that we think will make the country a fairer place. Place to live. And so there is a reluctance among some figures who you might expect to be people who find his sort of personal style of leadership or his character tasteless to sort of stick with him as the best of a bad bunch because he will sign off on those projects that um, are more to their taste and they have to hold their nose through the more populist, perhaps nastier policies. We mentioned the Rwanda deal in the last section. So I think that's an interesting aspect of it that stood out to me when I've been speaking to people. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's quite useful to have a weak prime minister because you can bully them. (laughs) So there's lots of people who think we can use Boris Johnson to our ends. I think the other reason people vote for him, there are a minority of supporters, but there are also people in red wall seats who think there's no alternative prime minister who has any chance of letting them hold on to their seats, even though they're a lot of them set to lose their seats by 10 points plus at the moment. And I think finally, obviously, there's the, the extraordinary power of patronage and if you publicly come out and support Boris Johnson at his low moment, you too may be able to become an unpaid parliamentary private secretary. <laughs> Is there no greater honour? Who would who would be an MP? <laughs> I think the the numbers who are true believers in him and what he stands for uh, at the moment, if they were ever that high, is very low. Because one thing that we have really learned from the time that he's been in power is that he doesn't seem to stand for anything other than being in power. There were a lot of conservatives I know who supported him or some of who even worked with him when he was London mayor who said he is a, a progressive, liberal, kind of centre-right, moderate mayor and that's global Britain, global London. That's the kind of person, uh, politician that he is who were really quite shocked with the form of Brexit that was pursued and a lot of the decisions on immigration and Rwanda you mentioned and on crime and policing. A lot of Tory MPs who were absolutely horrified with the policing bill, for example, and the restrictions on Mm. on peaceful protest. And I think what we have learned is that, if you didn't know it already, he will sort of twist and shapeshift and come out in support of whatever's popular at the time. And you can't trust it. Now, what that means is that if you're in the right place at the right time, maybe you can convince him to back whatever your pet issue is. And it's not, say, a Margaret Thatcher figure where if you went and talked to her and you made your case, she was still going to do what she wanted to do because she had a very clear, very strong vision, which he doesn't have. Maybe that's useful, but not because you ultimately believe that he is the best person to run the country just because he is the least bad option. I think just going back, it's probably just Nadine Doris and Jacob Rees-Mogg who actually think he is the best person to to run the country. And then finally, and I, I know that no one has naked ambition like a like an MP. And if you were given the chance to be prime minister, you know they would probably all grab it. But now is not the best time to take over as 
Tory leader with 12 years in power, uh, all of the, the economic headwinds that we've already discussed, all of the legacy issues. If you were a bright, young, up and coming sort of MP in, in a junior role, it might be best to stick with Boris, lose the next election, spend time out of power and then make the next steps of your career when the party's in the ascendancy again. I can see Harry disagreeing with me violently. That would be the smart thing to do. But hang on, hang on. I, I just, I, I very strongly remember the day of the 2010 election, walking along my road and someone who lived nearby who worked vaguely with the Labour Party saying, it's a good election to lose. That was in 2010. It's now 2022. The Labour Party have not been in power since then. When you have power, you hold on to it with your 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 fingertails. You, there's no election to lose. They're all terrible to lose. Once you lose, you're out. And then we don't pay attention to you for a long time and the other party are in charge. You just have to get in, in control and, and seize the ship of state, reinvent government, etc., etc. I, I really strongly believe that just as a strategic point. Well, we and also a moral point. You're not asking people to vote for you not to win, right? Yeah, I think so. You should have a vision for the country that you think that you ought to... I, I, hear I don't think they have that, though. <laughs> I, I hear what you're saying, Rachel, but it's, it's just it's so cold in the wilderness. Ask the Labour Party. Uh, but, maybe um, that's why I would never be an MP. <laughs> <laughs> but just lastly on this, the people who are sticking by him, is it part of it because the potential alternatives or those who could run in a leadership election are saying things that spook different parts of the party? So Tobias Elwood talking about the single market, for example. has that Does that suddenly make some Brexit-minded potential rebels think, oh... Actually, or can't risk us going down this path again. And equally, Liz Truss, sort of a, a libertarian stalwart, really. Do people really want that kind of economic policy now for the context that we're living in? That might freak out some of those who are slightly more economically to the left, um, those who represent 2019 so-called red wall seats. I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to let Harry answer that question. I'm just going to say that it's not just Tobias Elwood. He, he said we should rejoin the single market. We actually had arch-Brexiteer Daniel Hannan saying we should never have left it, which John Elledge has written in a very, I think, very funny piece uh, this week <laughs> that you can read, read the, the about turn of Dan Hannan. If only somebody had said, stay in the single market. And now I will be quiet and let Harry answer the question. <laughs> I'm also a huge John Elledge fan, so I'll add to that. But I know I, I have I've been told that Tobias Elwood's comment cost three rebels that that one prominent backer on the day and two others didn't vote against Johnson because they thought I can't vote for this man Elwood and his ridiculous policy of going back into the single market Mm. but I I actually think I'd push against this idea that lots of people have which is that Rishi's downfall made it harder to get rid of Boris I think in some ways it made it easier because so many people could then believe in their person and their vision of it's a bit like Brexit they could believe in their, their version of Brexit their version of the future Tory party if you don't know what the the future is. So I think the fact that, that it's a wide open field makes it easier in some ways. Because you can just project whatever you want from your leader on whoever might emerge from the Yeah, contest. you can just believe yeah. that y- y- your leader is going to come through or you're going to be minister for housing in, in that person's government or whatever it is. Whereas if it's just it's the Rishi show, then you think, I'm not going to fit in that show, so why would I vote for him or vote to get rid of Boris? Finally, we've had a listener clarification and uh, correction. This is from Dr. Brendan Theaker, who has told us that he is born in 1972, which is relevant. Dear podcast, I was interested to hear the debate about metric versus imperial units. For clarification, firstly, miles and kilometres are measures of distance, not speed. Speed is distance divided by time, hence kilometres per hour or miles per hour. Secondly, when measuring horses, one hand equals four inches. So it is imperial. Thank you very much, Brendan. 
Um, that was my error on, on horses and I think all of our errors on speed and distance. But I think we've, what, what we've learned from this is that the New Statesman podcast team does not understand imperial measurements <laughs> and will not We're be... far too youthful. And will not be succeeding in this brave new world order <laughs> where we are saying farewell to, to the metric system. So thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleagues, Rachel Cunliffe and Harry Lambert. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out. Why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community... Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts.